In this week's show, we have a special guest. We have Rabbi Mike Farvey, who um, wrote a recent book called Let's Talk, uh, Rabbi Speaks to Christian. It's uh, published by Fortress Press, and it's available on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. Um, and it's for Christians, leaders, um, clergy, and lay people about the Jewish aspects of their faith, as well as um, misconceptions and issues with anti-Semitism and um, the historical Jesus. Um, we're honored to have you because we've been having uh, two series. The first one was called uh, the Jesus the Israelite, where we discuss the, the Jewish life of Jesus in context of history and uh, how would he relate as a, as a member of the Jewish people to the temple, to uh, you know, Jewish life cycle and other um, things that are related to Jewish life. And now we are discussing the, the mystical components of uh, Paul's teachings that I think sometimes um, people are not aware of because of all these century, layers of centuries and, and misinterpretations that have happened. So um, our previous guest was discussing um, the history of the Jewish Christian movement and how it kind of survived throughout all the persecution from the, the mainstream church and different empires. Um, I would like to know, um, as, as you wrote your book, were you thinking of just modern um, interpretations and ways of looking at um, the Christianity from a Jewish perspective? Or were you also thinking about the original text and how they related to uh, the greater Judaism or like some scholars would say, uh, the Judaisms of the Second Temple period? Uh, well, I was, I was looking at both of them, actually. The, the first chapter of the book discusses the difference between first century Judaism and modern Judaism. And the reason why is because most Christians, their only view of Jews is through the skewed lens of the Gospels of first century Judaism. They know very little or nothing about uh, the rabbinic period or later and into modern Judaism. And so those distinguishing factors are really important to discuss um, the historical context and culture of the Second Temple period, um, as well as the different sects at the time and uh, where uh, the Jesus movement uh, took place within that. And again, uh, the reason that this is relevant is because every time that there's um, an uproar in the Middle East about, um, you know, politics or, or regional conflict, it always comes to the front, like, you know, we're closer to the end times and, and there's the Jewish version of the end times, the Christian version, and then the Islamic version. And all these uh, perspectives are always, you know, there's a combination of, of things like what is, what is the purpose of, of, of what's happening and how do we get there. But when you think about uh, the Jewish um, followers of Jesus, do you see them as an apocalyptic group, a messianist group, or a charismatic group, like um, uh, Gisa Vermesh would say that um, they were, have like a, a prophetic component, and they were trying to uh, share the visionary uh, ideas, uh, because all those different groups have different manifestations. Or as, as some people would say that they had all kinds of mystical elements coming from all uh, older traditions within the, the Jewish uh, circles. Well, I would say that when the Jesus movement started, um, you know, I mean, Paul's movement was very different from that of the evangelists. But um, overall, what, according to the Gospels anyway, what Jesus preached was an apocalyptic movement. He believed that the kingdom of heaven was to come in his time in a short amount of time. It didn't, but that's what um, he believed. Um, that also became a messianic movement, one of many that occurred um, throughout Jewish history, one of the many false messiahs that occurred. Um, so I guess you could say it's both of them, um, but certainly it was apocalyptic, um, like any apocalyptic moment, um, talking about the end of the world that would come in his time, the kingdom of heaven in this case. Um, and one of the major reasons that um, we reject Jesus as a, as a false messiah is because the apocalypse did not come, um, uh, nor did any of the aspects of messianic 
predictions uh, come true uh, through the works of Jesus. So both of them worked against him in terms of that, in terms of um, the, Jesus, the Jewish Christians and then the Gentiles um, using Gnosticism and paganism to build a new, uh, what became a new religion, but became a sect of, of Judaism up until like the fourth, fifth century. Um, but they had to scramble after, after Jesus died uh, when those things did not come to be. Would you make a distinction between uh, a false Messiah and a failed Messiah or someone that didn't fulfill their uh, destiny or their, their mission uh, due to the circumstances or the lack of uh, support or something like that? Uh, as as other uh, messianic figures have uh, done throughout history. Well, um, I, th I I don't see a distinction because in Ju in Judaism, um, messiahs don't fail. Right, the idea is the messiah doesn't fail. The messiah serves a purpose. Um, other false messiahs also uh, were figured out to be so uh, false, such as Shabbat Taizvi. Um, Frank Jacob, those sort of things, you know, Shabbat V is a great example when um, he, you know, he reassured his place as a false messiah when he converted to Islam um, and threatened by death, right? That's not a failed messiah, that's a false messiah. Um, the fact that Jesus died after a three-year ministry um, makes it, you know, none of the things came true afterwards, none of the, the messianic age did not come, uh, makes him a false messiah because there's nothing about a second coming in any Jewish literature. So, um, nor is there anything about a failed Messiah, you know, missing the messianic destiny. That's a very um, Christianized view, not a Jewish view. Because some of my Christian friends would uh, point to Bar Kokhba as um, almost like they pick uh, Jesus and we pick Bar Kokhba in the sense of we wanted a warrior king and, and they got a servant king. And it's and you know it's a hundred years later or eighty years later, but it's almost like the Jews had their their Messiah and look what happened and and we have ours and look you know where it took us. So how would you <laughs> respond to to that um, dichotomy they create? I mean that's a nice midrash. Um, you know Bar Kokhba was also a false Messiah. Um, you know uh, what what is important I think is to un is to track. And understand when does a false messiah come and is embraced, right, in Jewish history? When the ones before Jesus and after Jesus, like Bar Kokhba or Shabbat Zvi or Jacobs or um, uh, the Lubavitcher Revi, I mean, there. What are the circumstances in the environment that make that figure um, appear with hope to be messianic in that age? Right? Is it? In times of crisis, um, after the, you know, a great deal of pogroms, when Shabbat Zvi came, is it a time of rebellion where Bar Kokhba came? Is it a time of, um, you know, a, an oppressive empire uh, when Jesus came? Um, these are all, um, you know, psychological, sociological factors that that give us pause about what would make a group, a certain group of Jews. Um, as we have throughout history, assign themselves to a messianic figure, only to be disappointed each time. Um, we don't seem to learn, um, but that's how it goes in terms of our emotions. You know, we, it's a very irrational uh, want and need to make a messiah out of something that is not there, right? Um, which is why the rabbis are so clear um, you know, and Mishnah and Talmud that, you know, you will notice, you'll notice when the Messiah comes. It's not like you can miss it, right? Um, it's not in these small moments of Judea or Europe or whatever it is. It would be worldwide. It'd be, you know, something like that. And that's one of the reasons that um, I think they were aware as to the irrationality of, of human, human emotion to say, oh, that's, an, that's a Messiah or that's a messianic figure. Um, when, um, you know, there are lots of things to point that they are not. So how would you communicate this to, to a church or a group of Christians without um, getting canceled, per se, in the, in the sense <laughs> of we, we threw a lot at them at the beginning of this conversation. Um, 
this idea of, of false representation or someone not fulfilling their role. So how would you communicate that and build bridges of understanding and, and mutual collaboration without um, alienating people by not accepting their beliefs? Well, um, you know, our job isn't to accept another person's belief. It's to distinguish the differences. And, and as long as we don't step on each other's toes, um, you know, to live side by side. So I, t I talk at many churches and interfaith events, and, and my book is very much the same in acknowledging that this is what they believe. That's, that's great. You, you know, as long as you're not killing us, that's fine. Um, however, um, this is why being able to say, this is why reasonable, um, and, and they can say, huh, okay, we believe this because, because eventually whether it's proof texts or, um, you know, innuendo or typology or supersessionism, it all comes down to something to be very subjective on either side. It comes down to belief. Um, so at a certain point, a Jew stands next to a Christian and says, this is what I believe. And the Christian says, I believe something different. And we say, okay, go in peace, live well. I have no problem with that as long as, you know, what we do is not invasive to one another, right? Proselytizing or, or worse, um, as long as that is not invasive, um, then just like, you know, anyone else, Jews and Christians can live side by side, um, believing different things um, as we've done for, you know, um, before Christianity, um, understanding the ideas of monolatry that, you know, we believe our God is, is the right God. You guys can have your God. Um, or even in monotheism, we believe our God is, is the real God. Yours is, we don't believe is the real God. That's okay. Um, you know, um, it's, it's more about, I mean, the belief is not problematic. What you do with it is what can be right. The followers of Christianity have, you know, have committed travesties over the last 2000 years in Jesus's name, um, that we would take issue with what they believe, you know, we don't have issue with. And once we maintain that understanding with each other, well then in explaining first century Judaism or modern Judaism or whatever, in my experience, we make Christians feel a deeper connection to the Jewish roots of Christianity. And it's a beautiful thing that they can have. And that's really what we end up doing, um, depending on who we speak to. But no, I've never been, I've never been um, canceled or, um, or accused of isolating uh, people in my, in my talks, which are, which are very academic and um, respectful in terms of this is what we believe and this is why. And we know this is what you believe and this is why. They're not gonna match up, that's okay. You know, it's important to learn. At one point, like in the 2000s and the 90s, there was a, a document that was written by a bunch of Jewish scholars, and they were saying that Christians weren't uh, culpable for the Holocaust. And it, it, it started off like very positive, like we believe in the same God, we believe in the same values, we have shared tradition in the scriptures, we, um, we respect human dignity, we follow a lot of, um, you know, similar, um, you know, values and things like that. And right. it was, there was like 80 people that, that signed it. And, yeah. and a professor uh, of the same uh, college where we went to said that he wouldn't sign it because right. he didn't believe in a Judeo-Christian tradition. Correct. In the sense of um, when people use the Judeo-Christian, um, you know, blanket, they're saying that, that we pretty much believe the, the same basic tenets. And he was saying that the whole point of them being distinct religions is that we have a different interpretation. 100% right. So is that where you stand or are you a little more uh, willing to, to, to kind of focus more on, on the commonalities than the differences? Well, I don't think it's one or the other. I think that that document, which I, I take severe issue with, first of all, I mean, Judaism is not a monolith. Um, and this was sort of a clumsy attempt to sort of make it one um, to develop like a creed like Christians do. We, we don't have creeds. And so I take issue with that document. Um, and I would not have signed it either for many reasons. One, there is no such thing as Judeo-Christian values. Um, there are Christian values. Um, 
Christian values of that are projected onto Jewish texts are no longer Jewish values. Um, it also can be very isolating Judeo-Christian values to other forms, like uh, other religions, like Islam. Um, but uh, that's one. That's one point. Um, the other point is that um, Christians were culpable for the Holocaust. We know that um, that evangelical uh, German and Lutheran and Catholic um, were all part of the Nazi Party. Christianity was one of the tenets of the Nazi Party. Um, there's lots of evidence to support that. So, if you're going to try to make peace with with people, you can't just deny history. Um, you know that those were they weren't Christian. They were. Um, you know what they did was wrong. That you can be honest about, right? To to say that they weren't Christian or the Christians aren't culpable um, is incorrect, historically inaccurate. Christians are culpable, just like for the Crusades and the Inquisitions and the pogroms, right? Um, the point is, is what we do about it, right? We educate about what happens when Christianity and politics mix, and you get churchianity, or you get a government that's fueled by Christian beliefs. Um, and things, you know, get violent. Um, but again, um, none of that has to do with finding the similarities or the differences. Pointing out the tragic history uh, of basically Christian genocide against Jews is not a divisive thing. It, it's an educational moment, a learning moment. And what do we do with it now, right? It, it's not that we hold grudges. It's you need to know this and why Jews have genetic PTSD, why we don't attempt to, um, you know, go to the discussion table without a little bit of weariness, as Rav Soloveitchek taught us, you know, there's a great deal of baggage that comes with it. And to deny it um, would be to ignore 2,000 years of history. I go in and educate and hold on to that baggage on both sides and then say, well, then we can talk. Um, and that's where pro real productive conversation comes when accountability and responsibility and honesty comes forth, not as the document was, I forget the name of it, um, but it was, a, it was a, just a very silly thing to do um, for lots of reasons. Well, going back to the beginning of the conversation, you mentioned that the message of Jesus was um, reinterpreted or transformed into a mismatch of, uh, mystery cult and paganism and things like that. Would you say that that took place um, in the second century, in the first century, in the hands of Paul, or was it um, a slow process? Because that is a, uh, a particular view. And, and we've had people on the show that talk about the Mithras cult and the influence to um, early Christianity. We've mm -hmm. had um, a couple of atheists uh, discuss their uh, disdain for uh, the structure or the way that it was uh, presented. Um, historically, would you, um, where would you place the transformation from a Jewish movement or even uh, because, you know, I, I've had conversations where, where even in the writings of Paul, you see like possible uh, different layers where the first layer is mystical and then it becomes Hellenized and then it becomes almost a Gnostic and then possibly has other interpolations. Uh, do you see that as well? Or do you think that um, it was a later development based on a, on a Jewish move? Well, I can only tell you what, um, what scholarship points to. Um, and just like early Judaism, um, early Christianity did not, was not formed in a vacuum, right? We know that the Noah story was preceded by Atrahasis and Gilgamesh, that the creation story was preceded by Enuma Elish. Um, so when Christianity was created, uh, or rather when the Jesus movement began, right, there were influences um, from uh, the Gnostics, from pagan ideas, which is where you get the son of a son of a god that's a very Greek. A mythological idea, not a Jewish idea. Um, and then there are other uh, old ideas about characters very like Jesus um, that are uh, that are brought into this as well. Um, but then you have that mixture with, so I mean, 
Paul, you know, was a salesman for the Gentiles, and that's why, you know, Christianity expanded. But the evangelists, the gospel writers, um, they had their own uh, agenda in terms of typology of shaping Jesus through the lens of um, what they would call the Old Testament, what we call the Tanakh. Um, the, uh, you know, they would form his life around the life of Moses, his suffering around Jeremiah, um, and the suffering servant, um, the things he would quote from Leviticus and Deuteronomy, all built, um, because none of them had met him, basically in trying to write, and may imagine trying to write your grandfather's biography, right? You'd know some things, um, but you need filler. And so they used typology to fill and build that up. What then, be, what then that became was this false notion of prediction, right? Um, as one of the great teachers of, of Christian scriptures um, speaks about it, it's, um, it's if you come across a arrow in the middle of a bullseye, you would assume that the bullseye was there first and the arrow shot into the bullseye. You would never think that someone shot an arrow into the wall and then someone painted the bullseye around it. That's exactly what the gospel writers did. Um, they painted the, the bullseye around the arrow. And then a couple hundred years later, everyone said, look how that well that matches up. So um, all of that combined, right, plus the wariness of Rome, trying to distance themselves from Jewish uprising, distinguish themselves, um, aligned with Rome, um, you know, all of that had influence in the building of the Jesus narrative and the Jesus movement. Is there anything that, that you see that has been missed? Um, when, when you read anti-missionary books, they, they say, well, this is messed up and this is messed up and that's messed up. But um, I remember reading the, the Real Messiah by um, Ari Kaplan. And he says that uh, the issue is not the, um, the claims that are made, is the, um, the, the conclusions. So it's, not, so it's not even the assumptions, it's the conclusions. So if you start right. off with the idea that someone can be the son of God, uh, you know, you can look at Adam being the son of God. You can look at the children of Israel being children of God. Um, right. The overall perspective, it's you can work with, but the specificity, the, the narrowness of it. Uh, and you see that in other Jewish mystical groups where it's like, we're it and everybody else is out. Do you think that that's how it, it kind of developed where it became more and more exclusive and to the point of uh, conflicted towards everybody else that didn't agree? I think every religion when it's being built and even later um, protects itself in that way. Um, but also, builds itself off of conclusions, as you said. So if you imagine like a Jenga tower, right? If you believe that the scriptures of the Tanakh point to Jesus, right? You do not, you then have to say, well, Jews don't recognize their own scriptures, which is supersessionism and replacement theology, um, that Jews don't imagine their Bible, you know, standing on its own, serving an additional purpose, right? Um, so you need to change the whole perspective of that, right? Um, and then you go into, uh, you know, proof texting, right? Um, we as Jews, uh, we converse and argue about texts, right? A, a Christian uh, wants conversion, not con not conversation, because of what has taken place in that. So that's another layer. Well, what does that mean? That means that there's a certain way to proselytize and a certain reason for it, um, and then you you assign blame, right? Um, Jews are ac accused of being Christ killers, or, um, you know, deicide, the, uh, you know, the calls against the Pharisees as hypocrites, synagogue of Satan, all you need to have an enemy and, you know, unite against that. So, I mean, I think that with all of this, when any religion is being built, certainly when Christianity, when the Jesus movement was being built, um, they did what they could to one survive in a hostile environment, 
um, an oppressive empire that had just smashed a rebellion, um, and then living in a Hellenized world, seeing what worked, seeing what didn't work, who was available, right? There's only so many Jews and Jewish Christians that um, were part of that. They moved to the Gentiles. It was very opportunistic. Um, meanwhile, Judaism went a whole different direction. So while, while Christianity was being formed as a biblical, biblically-based sort of hodgepodge of, of other things, um, Judaism moved on to rabbinics and that sort of thing. And so up until the 4th, 5th century, um, Christianity still was like another sect of Judaism, sort of like in North America today, where we've got reform, conservative, orthodox, renewal, whatever it is. The Jesus movement, Christianity was, they probably intertwined and intermixed, but at a certain point when the church and the de declarations and the governments, whatever got involved, all of that intermingling stopped. Um, and all of the assumptions over the last 400 years came into dogma and creed. And that's when things got official, you know? Um, so I think it's a hodgepodge of, uh, of factors. And then when it lands in the hands of power, what happens to it? And here Christianity landed in the hands of power and Judaism didn't. Do you see any traces of Agadah or uh, Halakha within the New Testament? Um, and for our audience, it's um, moral teachings or um, stuff that can be interpreted and then uh, legal uh, treatises or legal aspects of identity um, in relation to the life of Jesus and the, the apostles. Well, what I'll say is this, um, you know, uh, one of the main criticisms of Jews in the New Testament is that we were, were legalistic, is that we're too legalistic, right? Um, Jesus makes that point in the Gospels quite often. Um, and so I wouldn't say that it's halachic um, in many ways. That being said, Jesus does reference a few of our commandments, a few of our Torah verses, um, and does his own midrash about them. You know, this is most important, or this is what this means for his apocalyptic idea. So certainly it's a Gothic in that way, but I wouldn't say it's halachic um, because the entire idea of Jesus is um, in, in the Jesus movement is that all of the legality is fulfilled by his presence, which means halacha is no longer necessary for him for, and for, for Christians. For us, it is still necessary um, because nothing fulfills halacha for someone else. In Judaism, that's a Christian idea. Um, that being said, um, Jesus does do a lot of Agadah in terms of parables and these sorts of things. A lot of them are anti-Jewish, but um, that is certainly his, what the gospel writers anyway, um, created him as, as a Gothic and a storyteller and parables and teaching through those um, stories, which is very familiar to uh to Judaism, we teach through stories and mid, excuse me, and through midrash, um, and a lot of Jesus's other other teachings. You know the uh, the golden rule that they talk about so much. Well, that's a Hillel, Hillel rule. You know, um, of the do unto the other, do unto others, or um, what is hateful you do not do to your neighbor. Right? I mean, there's there's references to show that what the gospel writers were trying to show Jesus as was a knowledgeable Jew of Second Temple teachings. Um, so there is, there's no doubt that there's that agotic storyteller, midrashic aspect to him, according to the Gospels. Um, but I think I'd have a hard time uh, arguing anything in terms of legaliz legalistic. There's too much um, uh, polemics against legalities um, in the New Testament to see it as any, anything halakhic. One of our future guests on the series says that uh, in the last um, you know, 40 years, they've been trying to recreate Paul into a more Jewish um, teacher and, and more in line with um, Second Temple Judaism and that his proof that it's actual a real thing and it's not... Um, a made-up one is that in the Book of Acts, you see him um, partake of the the rite of the Nazarite, 
and that he um, he follows uh, James, who is known to be more uh, religiously Jewish than the other uh, people from history, and he and he does um, he proves that he does not go against the law of Moses in his actions. Um, do you see in, any history within that, or is that also um, uh, trying to uh, win people over, or a, a form of uh, writing history to to look good in the eyes of the people who are trying to turn around. Well, I, you know, I I don't want to come down too hard on that. I think people are open to attempting to find aspects of characters in antiquity. They're allowed to do that, um, but you know, there are several things sort of standing in their way. I mean, Acts was not written by Paul. Acts was written by Luke right? Um, or the Gospel of Luke, uh, that same author, which means, well, that has an agenda, and what, what was he trying to write about Paul, and all that sort of stuff. It's not really particularly historical. The other aspect is that Paul was the one who reversed the sequence for salvation, right? Um, Gentiles precede disbelieving Israel because he has the covenant skip from Abraham to Jesus with membership restricted to those in Jesus, irrespective of whether they're Jewish ethnically, right? That's Romans 9, 6, right? So what that means is the fulfillment that we Jews have sought has already occurred, but the disbelieving Jews are blind to the fulfillment of our heritage. As someone who is, um, you know, Jewish, would not, would not preach such things, would not say such things, um, uh, in that way, right? He he had clearly converted himself into something different, a Jewish Christian, right? He chastises his what what I guess you could call fellow Jews for not accepting Jesus as the fulfillment of this, you know, concept conceptual scheme um, that is foreign to Jews in the begin with. What Paul is preaching is extremely foreign to Judaism, right? Um, his views of Jesus as a type of dying and rising that's very Greco-Roman savior deity, um, you know, very sharply diverging from Judaism's understanding of the messianic role. So um, I think it would be, they'd be hard pressed to make a strong case uh, of that. I think Paul is a very Gentile Greco-Roman, um, you know, non-Jewish character in terms of what he is preaching. So, I mean, they're welcome to try, but I think they'd be hard-pressed to, to do it. Are you familiar with the, the teachings of Philo in relation to the logos and how um, you need uh, some type of uh, intercessor uh, between God and man? Because I, I thought that it was completely foreign and, and outside of the, the Jewish purview, but when I heard uh, Bart Erdman bring up uh, Philo and this idea of either the logos or the membra or some almost like a sephira that uh, becomes uh, interlocutor between us and God, then it became a little more um, understandable that they would have their own version of that or even the, the figure of Enoch becoming, um, you know, an in-between or some, in some other groups they had like Moses became divine at Mount Sinai. Um, do you think any of that has any, because there's a book called um, The Jewish Gospels by uh, Daniel Boyarin, and he says that within the, yeah. the, the world of Judaism at that time, there was all kinds of out-of-the-ordinary ideas that now uh, Jews would consider crazy, but that back then it was um, many of the options. Do you think that those things um, were um, part of 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 Jewish theology at that time or their later uh, additions or perspectives? Oh, well, there's no doubt. I mean, I think Boyer is, is correct in a lot of what he's writing. I mean, he's, he's a wonderful scholar in that way. I, I love his work and I, I use it um, very much in my book as well. There's no denying that, uh, you know, from the Qumranites and Essenes um, to the division of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that there were some, what well, we would say, sort of out there views swimming around in Judaism at the time, in the first century, in the second temple period. I mean, um, all you have to do is study Dead Sea Scrolls to know that what was going down with the Qumranites. And that's, 
they had their own messianic idea, they had their own intercessor idea, that sort of idea. Um, and so, and then you have what you were referencing, right? The, um, the pseudepigrapha and the apocrypha, the non-canonical uh, writings, you know, Book of Enoch and Testament of Job and Testament of Abraham, all these other ideas uh, that did not make it into the canon by the end of the first century, but, you know, show that there were all kinds of views going on. And I think it's important to note that that's always how it's been. Um, if you read the Tanakh, uh, there are plenty of views that conflict with one another within the Tanakh, right? The Psalms are a great example. There's all kinds of different theologies in the Psalms um, that became my, minor and the other ones won out, right? Um, the evolution from polytheism to monolatry to monotheism. Monotheism clearly was the school of thought that won out. Um, that doesn't mean that we ignore the fact that there were polytheistic Israelites and monolatrous Israelites. I think in the same way, in the Second Temple period, um, Jews were playing around with a lot of different theological ideas, and that's okay, right? I mean, whatever won out, won out. Um, a school of thought wins at a certain point. Um, but no, there's no, I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, acknowledging archaeological evidence and historical evidence that um, the idea of an intercessor, um, you know, would be out of, out of nowhere, right? Um, nothing is built in a vacuum. And um, wherever we have lived, we see the influence of other cultures and other religions and it seeps in. I mean, as late as Maimonides, right? I mean, um, uh, with uh, Islamic culture um, seeping into his um, his writings. And so we just have to acknowledge that and be okay with it, that um, nothing is, is built in a vacuum. So yeah, no, I, I think that's fine. Yeah. Our previous guest on the series, we asked him regarding Gnosticism and Judaism. Do you believe that there was a, a Gnostic wing of Jews um, around that time or that that is a, a fabrication? Because, um, you know, it, when Kabbalah was considered um, not part of intellectual Judaism in the, in the 1900s, they kind of dismissed it as, oh, that's just Gnostic stuff. But, yeah. uh, but you see that um, these mystical ideas and the early Jewish mysticism um, was very prevalent. Do you think that um, it had some Greco-Roman influence uh, as, as Kabbalah developed, or was it its own thing from within Jewish circles in the, in the Middle East? Well, again, I, I think it would be silly to deny that there were as any outside influence uh, into um, Judaism, including Gnosticism. Does that mean that there was a Gnostic sect of Judaism? No. But were there Gnostic elements that perhaps were practiced or input that uh, mirror or are parallel to some of our writings at the time? And certainly when Kabbalah really got going in 14th and 15th century, um, you know, in the north of, of Israel and Svat, right, um, that in itself had a place and, and certain documents were picked and certain views were, you know, that were... Um, outside the spectrum of standard Jewish theology, right? Um, the multifaceted ideas of God and buying all these departments and that sort of stuff, right? I mean, um, you know, one could, and, and some do, look at that as, you know, completely crazy in terms of that's not the God that we know from the Bible or the, or the rabbinic text or whatever it is. And yet there it is, a part of Judaism. And so, Certainly, Gnostic and other influences were and are present um, in aspects of our texts and teachings, um, just like Hellenized, is, you know, issues are, um, you know, just like as late as, you know, when Reform Judaism, you know, was created in Germany, right, um, and then moved into America, it shifted. I mean, again, Judaism is not built in a vacuum, and so um, we can't deny that Gnosticism was a part of part of the time there. And, um, but I would not go as far as to say that it developed its own denomination or sect like the Jesus movement did or, or like Kabbalah did later. Um, I think um, scholarship tells us that there were, there were influences, you know, just like anything else.
was there heretic hunting within the rabbinic circles like you see early in Christianity? Um, I was sharing that, you know, you hear Paul attacking other apostles that he doesn't consider to be legitimate apostles. Then you he attacks people that are preaching a different gospel. And then there's illegitimate Jews and there's illegitimate, illegitimate Christians. And, and then there's been tons of books written from the church fathers on about what constitutes a heretic and how many different types of heretics exist. Was that going on within uh, rabbinic circles too? Or was it more limited and less discriminatory against uh, divergent views? Well, I'll say this about the rabbis, um, you know, the Emmerin and Tanaim and, um, you know, the Gaonic period. Um, the one thing that we did was uh, certainly we argued and we thought certain people were wrong, um, but we retained the minority opinion in the Mishnah and the Talmud, right? We don't delete it and say it never occurred. We retain it. Um, we retain it as part of the discussion. And then we say the sages ruled in this favor, right? Um, the reason for that is because sometimes that majority opinion doesn't work anymore. And instead of starting from scratch, they go to a different opinion or a minority opinion that does work, um, that has some value to it. That being said, there are plenty of stories of rabbis, um, you know, sending people to harem or, um, you know, calling out blasphemy or, or heresy, um, whether they are true or not, or to, you know, to, uh, you know, to be allegorical to, or eisegesis to teach a lesson of some kind, that's, that's subjective and individual. But um, I would say what Paul was doing was quite different um, in terms of um, calling out legitimate or illegitimate, um, you know, uh, Jews or Christians, because he was in the business of sales. He was attempting to build a religion. Um, and so he needed it stacked accordingly and organized accordingly. And this was you're in and this one you're out. Rabbinic Judaism wasn't really ever like that. Um, there's always exceptions and there's always stories and there's always multiple perspectives and that's okay. Um, you have to do some pretty horrible things to get kicked out um, or to be called illegitimate. Um, despite what some of our ultra-Orthodox friends now think, but um, in, in rabbinic Judaism, which is the basis for all modern Judaism, I would say that's quite different from what Paul was doing. And these stories where he gets flogged or, or beat up by other Jews because of his um, considered apostate uh, views or heretical views within the the book of Acts, is do you think that those are also uh, fabrications or could there be that sure. since, since he was a Jew, he was being um, uh, reprimanded as a Jew? No, I think that's nonsense. I think um, certainly by the time, um, you know, Acts was written, um, there was quite an agenda, right, to demonize Jews um, and to make them look you know, worse than they are. Um, we're not big on flogging. We're not big on, and we never have been um, big on, I mean, the, you know, this references back to the idea of the Sanhedrin trial of Jesus, right? That most likely never occurred um, because the Sanhedrin trial would never meet at night. It would never declare blasphemy and it would never sentence someone to death. That's, that's ludicrous, right? Just as these, these other stories, um, within Jewish history don't work with what Luke um, and Acts was trying to portray. Um, you know, a Jew looks at that and say, that's not who we are at all. It's not who we were at all. Um, and there's outside sources to show, you know, that, that that's ridiculous. Um, but it serves a purpose, right? It serves a purpose to define Paul as a character and to find Jews as characters, um, which is all part of the sale um in terms of building that part of the religion but it's important that we look at that from a very critical eye and then um what other books have you written and what other subjects do you uh, describe in your in your teachings um this is my first book come out um i have a couple more that i'm submitting proposals to 
um, that I hope to get published. I'm sort of working on that, but this is my first book. Um, but I teach on, um, and many of the many of these issues are within the book. Um, as I said, the difference between modern Judaism and first century Judaism, um, how to read the Gospels with a critical historical eye, um, and uh, the differences between the celebration of Jewish holidays and the appropriate Christian appropriation of them and how that's not right. Um, you know, fixing uh, the accidental or unknown landmines of anti-Semitism or anti-Judaism that Christians unknowingly step in with certain liturgies or stories. I mean, the Good Samaritan story everybody loves, but it's extremely anti-Jewish. You know, you just have to be taught these things in a particular way um, so that you know, right? To So that um, I don't believe that most Christians are malicious. Um, I, I do believe that their teachings sometimes lead them to be um, anti-Semitic or, or insulting with a different kind of intent. And so when I educate about that, most of them are, are horrified to learn what things mean that they didn't know they meant, um, you know, that they've been saying this for 20 years and they never realized how insulting it was. That's the education that I do um, and giving people the benefit of the doubt and understanding and intent. And that's really what the book is about and what I teach about. Um, but I also teach, um, you know, uh, you know, biblical criticism and um, intertextuality and all kinds of other other things like that that interest me. But this is the main main form of my work. And what was your experience growing up? Because um, what I try to tell my my daughters is that sometimes. Uh, growing up Jewish means being the kid that gets picked on or the, the person who's the odd man out. And that has, um, you know, a, an emotional effect on, on someone and the way that, that someone decides to pursue different fields or uh, either build bridges or, or become more isolated. Um, what was your experience and what made you get interested in this dialogue? Well, I, I grew up in uh, St. Louis, Missouri, in a, in a relatively um, educated area um, and part of a large Jewish population. Um, that being said, I've lived in many places since then that have not been so friendly uh, to Jews. What I will say um, is that the reason why I build bridges and interact and invite people in for dialogue is because I'm a student of Jewish history. And when we have self-isolated, when we've kept to the shtetl or the pale of settlement or the ghettos or, um, you know, not reached out, that does not save us, right? Quite the opposite. People come hungry thinking that we're doing horrible things and they murder us just as much to build bridges and to educate is a tactic against anti-Semitism because once you go into a synagogue and you see that we're not baking children into bread and we're not worshiping Satan, you go and you tell your friends and they're like, no, that's actually not true. And we start to spread the good and the truth instead of you know, the rumors and stereotypes. So that and my experience through seminary and others when I found that there are so many good-natured Christians that are hungry for this information, right? Christian teachings and education is extremely limited and extremely narrow. A Jewish person can expand that understanding leaps and bounds, and I found that they're hungry for it. Um, and so it's win-win. It benefits us because it takes away opportunities for hate and violence. Um, and it makes them feel like they know more about um, their, their Jewish part of their Christian heritage. So, um, you know, I decided to be a rabbi relatively late in life. I was 27. But, um, you know, that has always been a, the idea of education and not hiding or isolation has always been my philosophy. What do you think is happening that is bringing about um, 
the recent, um, you know, you hear different things and you don't know what to believe anymore, but they say that there's a, a rise in anti-Semitism. Um, do you think that, that it is happening and what is it, um, what's the catalyst at this time? Oh, sure. There's no denying that um, since 2016, there's been an exponential rise in anti-Semitism. Um, there's a couple of factors involved in that. Um, one is the rise uh, and empowerment of white supremacy, um, neo-Nazis, um, proud boys, that sort of thing, um, being empowered and being put in power, um, the lack of education of those who are on the right, um, you know, with uh, conspiracy theories, the QAnon conspiracy theory is extremely anti-Semitic at its roots. So that's what's happening on the right. On the left, we see extreme anti-Israel. Um, and we see, um, you know, beyond what was a nice balance between being supportive for Israel and, and being supportive for Palestinian human rights. Um, now, it's extremely hateful and anti-Israel. Um, and the only pro-Israel people on the right are those with Christian Zionism, which means they want us to come over there so that Jesus can, can come and, and erase us. It's not a good-natured Zionism. It's Christian Zionism. So those factors together um, have made a mess of global anti-Semitism. Um, there's no denying that it's more dangerous for Jews to live, um, you know, in Israel and in Europe and now in America. For, for the longest time, America was the new Zion. It was safe. There were no pogroms, all that sort of stuff. We're now seeing a rise, uh, exponential rise um, in Jewish hate crimes and anti-Semitic behavior in America, un, you know, unseen since, you know, Henry Ford. So... Yes, absolutely, that is happening, and, and there's, it's a perfect storm of political and, you know, uh, conspiracy beliefs. I mean, the Russian-Ukrainian uh, conflict right now also breeds it, right? I mean, um, whenever there's a conflict, Jews are, Jews are blamed. Zelensky's Jewish. That's an issue. Whenever there's a disease, right, COVID became a Jewish conspiracy, there's just been a lot of those factors that have happened that have that have risen anti-semitism around the world and it's really been a perfect storm um you know really upsetting well we want to thank you for your time rabbi harvey and uh we just know that it's an important topic and maybe we can have you in the future to discuss uh how people react to your book and are you planning to do a, a tour or a virtual one to, to get your book out I'll have to speak to my publisher, but um, I'm certainly going to do a uh, like a publishing party and, you know, I'm going to spread it all over social media. But um, I'm hopeful that there will be some sort of tour, whether in person or virtual, depending on the um, COVID situation. But um, I'll let you know and I'd love to come back and, and discuss the reactions and and um, see what people think. Real quick, if you can give us your websites, if people want to get your book. Uh, sure. So um, you just go to uh, com, and that will give you all the information as to the book, where you can get it, and some of the other projects that I'm working on. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you.